Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. My guest on today's podcast is Clark Mackey from Cake Websites and More in Asheville, North Carolina. Clark has over a dozen years of search engine marketing experience, almost entirely in aesthetics. I spoke with Clark for this episode on March 12th, just at the beginning of us understanding the impact the coronavirus would have on the practices we serve. As the pandemic changes our new normal by the day, one of our challenges is to bring you high-quality content that sounds current. So as you listen to this episode, we appreciate you keeping in mind that we were working with the information we had on that day. Over the coming weeks, everything we bring you through Real Self University will be focused on building your pipeline and working toward being ready for the day you're open for business again. Clark's message is especially relevant considering many of you will be assessing your marketing and looking at your online presence with fresh eyes. Today on the Real Self University podcast, I've got with me Clark Mackey from Cake Websites and More based in Asheville, North Carolina. And Clark is one of my favorite SEO people in pretty much in history. And so I feel really lucky that he agreed to talk to us today because I think there's a lot for us to learn about what Google has been doing lately and there's nobody with more experience than Clark. So welcome, Clark. Thank you, Eva. How did you get into SEO? What led you to the place where you're doing this now? But And then how long have you been doing it? It was an accident that I got into SEO. I got my first taste of SEO when I was working in a different career and the business I was working for needed their website to rank. They needed to pull in a nationwide audience. A little bit like some of my clients now, they were a high profit, but small by number of, of employees type business. And so I, I kind of dove in and helped them to rank. And this was late 90s, early 2000s. At the time, I had finished my postgraduate education. I was a licensed attorney. I wasn't working as an attorney. I had a lot of histories of, of tech skills and nerdiness on my part. And I, I dove in and it was magic to see good content be written and then page start to rank nationwide and clicks come to the site. That person fill out a form and the business grow to capacity basically. By 2004, I knew I wanted to run my own business. So I kind of early retired from that career. I didn't know exactly how it was going to shape up. But by 2006, I was running my own agency as a consultant with a small team. At the time, I was not serving a lot of or really any cosmetic surgeons, any plastic surgeons. And then in 2010, I met my now business partner. Amy Ellingson. She was running Cake Websites and more. I'm co-owner here now. I, I bought in and we merged our businesses. So that's the kind of career arc. Even though I didn't plan on getting an SEO, I have always loved teaching and I've always loved, loved learning. And those things kind of get baked into everything I do with my own team, a little bit with some with my clients, but certainly in how I push my clients' information out to the world. So there's some common ingredients, even though my career path has been varied. And, and that does mean I'm a former attorney like many other folks out there in the world doing things. I hear two things that I have in common with you here. One is, it sounds like you like the puzzle. What you put online actually causes an effect. And how do we mold that effect to the benefit of our client? And that, that was the thing I got obsessed with in the beginning too, was, was the puzzle. 
but the teaching and learning part is especially important because I think doctors and their staff, the thing they all have in common across the entire industry is they all love to learn. So when you can combine all of that into one sort of relationship with a, with a customer, that's extremely powerful. So what do you think is happening today with, with SEO that doctors are not aware of that they should be aware of? What's changed recently? There have been a lot of changes. One of the biggest changes over the last 12 to 24 months, and this is sort of one layer up thinking from actual algorithm changes or day-to-day like tactical interruptions that every practice faces. And even if a surgeon is not aware of it, there are these things that break like a storm across the web when something gets reordered and how search results are delivered. It doesn't have to be something that a surgeon obsesses with. But a layer above that, what we have seen happening is Google, especially that particular search engine, taking away some of the traffic that used to arrive from Google organic search and keeping it for itself. So answering more questions on the page showing you your airline ticket information right there in the search page. So you no longer click to a travel site. Now, on the surface, that speeds up the interaction. That seems like it helps the customer, and it may. But think about if you're the travel site that was making actual profit from your value adds, your vacation information, your hotel referrals. If you don't get the click, you can't sell the value adds, your profitability just went down. So as Google keeps traffic on the search page, before it has any effect on Google's revenue, it does lower the revenue of the businesses that used to get a chance to sell to that person. And that is a huge change. If you search for your business or you search for any product, you can see these objects in the search results page. You can see the airline information. You can see the people also ask questions. You can see the knowledge cards, which if you're a doctor are often about you. But at the bottom of that knowledge card are some of your competitors. So all of these things are occupying the mental space of the person searching. And they're all encouraging people to sort of have the question answered right there without visiting the site. And that's having some strong effects on how practice profits or or doesn't from a new person that doesn't know about the brand, especially. I know the global stat was, I think, uh, over 50% of searches worldwide did not result in a click through to someone's website. Not just doctors, but everybody. And is that what you've also seen on the micro level with the practice websites? It is. Those queries and that stat is looking at all searches. And those searches break down in a couple of buckets. People that use Google to navigate, so they know about the product. They're just typing in the name of the business and they could have used a map tool. They could have typed it straight in, but they're using search to find your site. That's a navigational query. Transactional queries from people that are ready to buy. So, you know, book airline ticket to Mexico kind of transactions or buy a Canon digital camera. I'm ready to give you my credit card. I want the product. That's a transactional search. And then informational searches. So informational searches have always had a different level of conversion. Some of them are very slow to convert. But it is these informational searches where this effect is the strongest. Because before you could provide the information, attract that click, the person gets to know the brand. Uh, This applies to real self as a as a company as well. And then while you have them learning about the thing and gaining that information and gaining that knowledge, um, a good example of informational query that affects some cosmetic practices is, is my mole cancerous or you know, Mohs surgery, those types of procedures that are related to somebody's at home, they're curious, they're worried, they actually have a dot on their arm, 
and they're looking for pictures of moles and they're thinking about going in to see somebody. You could try and attract that person by writing about that process. But if they don't click your site, you're not going to have as easy a time converting them. What was the first bucket? You said transactional, informational, but there was something before that. Oh, navigational. Navigational. And these are your brand queries. So Branded. Yeah. Dr. So-and-so reviews, Dr. So-and-so practice address. All those brand queries are, are navigational searches. I think you're touching on something really important here because we have to market to each type of searcher differently. Mm-hmm. And so you have to build into your website ways that attract all three of those searchers and talk to them differently. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And you, you want yeah. your site to do these things really well for each of these groups. I think one of the things I see often, at least from my vantage point, is that doctors are not understanding the difference, really the difference between that navigational or that branded search and what the needs are of someone who is on an informational or a transactional search. And I think it's that informational one that's the hardest. We don't know what to do with those people because they're just trying to learn something versus take an action. It's true that most of the sites I look at don't do a good enough job with these informational searches. And the that one of the hacks or the the techniques I try and teach our clients to use is to just generally put yourself in the shoes of the patient. That's an easy thing to say. It's a complicated and important thing to do. So if someone's listening to this interview, I, I don't want them to think, oh, of course, he said, put myself in the other person's shoes. That seems very obvious. You have to meditate on that like it's a religion. And you have to really put yourself in the other person's shoes. A hack to do that is to take any page on the site and look for how many times you use the word you. Because if you're writing an informational page, procedure page, and you're not using the word you, then I promise you, you've written it from the point of view of the business. Does that mean writing in first person versus third person? It can. It can. But this is just a filter to force yourself to put yourself in the other person's shoes. Because if you inject that word you, you, you have to write from their perspective a little bit. The other nice little hack is to after each consult, using a pen and paper, write down the questions you're asked in the exact words that they were asked. You could have one of your staff do this. You could have the doctor do this. I know that most, all of my clients hear the same questions over and over again, and they can quickly spit these out to me. But it is very interesting from my perspective as a third party, how the exact words of the patient already get erased a little bit, even when the doctor gives me the version of the question he's heard, he or she's heard a hundred times. So what I suggest is that you walk out of the consult, you spend 60 seconds with a pen and paper, and you write down their literal words. Even if they stuttered or said a slang phrase, you write down exactly what they spoke. Each of those words tells you what their actual desires are in their heart, how they phrase the question, and that can lead you to better content on the site, and not to mention a better consult. That's a fabulous trick. I have two versions of the same one that I've used over the years. One is to, just for your own purposes, download a recording app to your phone and record your consultation and then ship it off to get a transcription of it. So you don't actually have to do any work, but then you kind of get back a body of content that you could pass off to your marketing team and say, these are the kinds of questions I'm getting. Privacy issues, of course, come into play when you're recording somebody and they don't know it. So 
I mean, you have to to take caution to protect that person's identity. But that's one hack I've used a lot. And the other one is, most people don't know this, but on Real Self, if you look at the question pages, they're ranked in order of most popular to least popular. So if you're starting from zero and you don't even know where to go with this, maybe it's a new procedure for you, you can go to that page on Real Self and see the questions in the order of what's asked most often by consumers. Those are great ways to do it. Of course, be careful of HIPAA and be careful of call recording laws. The newest version of Google Android, the cell phone operating system, has a recording app that does live translation on the fly for free. It's just in the last, I think, 30 days been released. But even if you have an older Android phone, when it gets the update, Google Call Recorder app will do a live translation just like you're talking about. And as an agency, we use a lot of call recording and translating service. It's, it's a common practice for us too. Yeah. I'm a big fan of not doing work twice. Uh, you know, it's one of the things that they teach in law school, actually, that has really stayed with me, is that if someone else has done this, your job is not to copy it, it's to cite it. Don't, yes. don't redo other people's good work. And the, the entire, you know, everything from literal how precedent works, everything in law is built on that idea. And it's a good one. It is a good one. That's a really great analogy. It reminds me of uh, one of the, the other myths that comes up a lot, which is around duplicate content. And I, I am constantly frustrated with the content that I see, kind of going back to that first person, third person, talking to your actual prospect instead of just phoning in the content and saying something. And I think your team is particularly good at writing content that is engaging to real humans. So the sites that you work on are great examples of that if anyone's trying to just see what does this look like. Mm -hmm. And duplicate content comes up often as a, a very misunderstood SEO principle. So do you have an easy way of helping the audience understand when it is a problem and when it's not a problem to have duplicate content? I do. The first part of understanding duplicate content is to understand a little bit about how Google works. Because many people assume a little bit like property to title or a title to real property, buying something, a piece of land, that the first person to do the thing gets credit for it. Like, I did it first. I'm the first person to write this app. I'm the first person to talk about this. So, of course, that's how people are going to find me because I did it first. But Google has never been built based on that principle. Google's algorithms work on determining what is the most important search result to answer the intent of the person searching. So at the very core of their algorithm is not something based on who's first. It's something based on which is the best version. So understanding that, that Google's looking for the best version of something, not for the most unique or original version, helps to clear up some of the duplicate content bad thinking. So there can be five versions of something online. And you can have the first version ever published but the, the copy in the fifth version will rank. You have not lost that traffic because you're being penalized for duplicate content. You lost that traffic because the fifth version has other signals that Google interprets. Maybe the fifth version was the one that got linked to from a bunch of popular social media personalities. Maybe it was the one they got linked to from the National Institutes of Health or some big gov website that has high trust. So you don't need to be afraid of duplicate content like you're touching something radioactive. And you don't... Need, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 Google is going to figure out what it thinks is the most authoritative. 
That said, within your own website, there is a problem with duplicate content. And the problem is related to that first thing. Let's think about a, a procedure. I'll use breast lift as an example. You have a, a page that is about the services involved in getting a breast lift. It's your product page, if you want to think of it that way. And then you have a blog somewhere else on the site. And then you have other pages. If you have four or five pages that all say breast lift Austin, Texas in the first paragraph and in the title somewhere, it's how I got started in Austin, Texas doing breast lift. And then you have breast lift Austin, Texas is your main page. All of a sudden what you are doing, you're not creating duplicates, but you're creating pages that compete with each other for importance. So it is important within a site to make sure that you're not it's not so much that you're duplicating things, but you're taking the same main idea and accidentally putting it in, in places. And I've seen this mistake from in the agency work for years where they take a doctor bio page and tune it for some query because they need a landing page for it. And all of a sudden, the doctor bio page is detuned for the doctor's own name. And then that bio page is usurping traffic that should be going to the real procedure page. So mm-hmm. duplicate content is something that you should uh, kind of watch out for. You do want to use unique content, but you don't want to accidentally cannibalize your own internal uh, flow of traffic by having a bunch of pages that appear to be about the same thing in the first two paragraphs. I heard someone in a presentation once say, the strongest page should have the strongest scent. Like it should be the stinkiest page. And I loved that because it, it it just, it, like it immediately clicked what needed to happen. The page you want to rank has to have the most stink. Right. That's right. <laughs> for that term. <laughs> for that for that term. Also, in terms of just what is unique, there are a number of tools that will look for plagiarism online, Copyscape, that kind of thing. You can use any of those paid tools with your own content. One free hack is to take a paragraph from your own site, 50 to 100 words, put it in quotes, search for it in Google. You're telling Google to search exactly for this text of three or four sentences and then see what comes back. Google shows you three pages on your own site that use the same paragraph. That's betraying you a little bit that maybe you have a problem with what I'm talking about, having too many pages about the same idea. What about having multiple sites for the same topic? Like I, if you're a rhinoplasty specialist and you build three websites for one market and they're all similar, what kind of problems are caused with that strategy? The first problem is just general effectiveness. It's very expensive to use that strategy. The links that point to one of those three sites don't automatically benefit the other two. So let's say you post the world's cutest kitten photo on one of them and it goes viral and that site has a thousand inbound links. Mentions online, you don't have to think of them just as links. But that would make site A very, very important overnight. And sites B and C just, they didn't benefit at all. And you can go back and update site A to link to B and C. But now you're kind of, washing your feet with your socks on, so to speak, (laughs) because (laughs) if you had one site, those thousand links would have just boosted all the procedures on the one site. So it's expensive. At that point, you need three viral kitten photos, one for each site, if you want them all to do well. The other thing that can happen is uh, Google takes a, a low view of people that do things that make Google look bad in public. We could call that manipulation, I have to be careful with how I phrase all these things because you know, all marketing is some type of manipulation. I think that marketing needs to be 
done with the very highest ethics. It's a conversation about truth. It's a direct conversation with the people you are going to, in the case of a surgeon, operate on and have their life in your hands. So I think on the most basic level, Google doesn't want to show the same doctor three times in a search result. It wants to show 10 different options. It doesn't want to show seven different options and three of the same. That's right. Because it's not not useful. It's not useful. Now, the exceptions there are when the sites have a separate business purpose, when it is very, very clear that there are three takes on this topic and they're important and relevant and they are distinct. So imagine a guided fly fishing company that sells guided fly fishing tours and it's expensive and wonderful. And they separately publish a PDF DIY product for fly fishing in the same regions. There's two products and it's different audiences. The DIY people don't want to pay for the guided trip and the guided people could care less about having a perfectly planned vacation. There are different prices. The audiences overlap a little bit, but they're, they're very different business purposes. In that situation, it makes sense to have two sites. It does make sense. And, and there may be versions of that that exist in the world of cosmetic medicine where you choose to have a second or third site. But it's not just mm-hmm. because you're trying to get three sites listed in the organic search results for breast lift. And yet, it's still happening and people are still selling it and doctors are still buying it. That's true. One of the reasons why microsites get sold is because it's very easy to price. Yeah. You, you can put a, a price tag of several thousand dollars or however you, someone wants to bill it and the doctor understands what they're buying. They think that it might work and the, and the agency can go do that. And they don't actually have to prove that it worked once they've been paid for building the site. So just be alert to that. If someone's selling you something because it's, it's easy to bill for, that's not a reason to say yes to it. That's true. Okay, so let's say you're in a situation where you you know you have some duplicate content. There's other kinds of content that can hurt you or not necessarily hurt you, but aren't helping you anymore. And one example I'm thinking of in particular is when you have a site that's been around for a long time and you've invested a lot of money and time in it, it's very hard to say, can we turn off some of these pages? Can we get rid of some of these things? So will you expand a little bit on when that's the right strategy? And and I almost want you to give us permission to let things go to make the newer things more valuable. This is a happy answer. Everyone listening has permission to remove pages from their site where that page is no longer serving a clear purpose for the site visitors. And... They can be removed in a way that is safe, that does not penalize you in the search results that actually grows your business. One of the simplest filters, and this is in Google Analytics, is to pull a page report. Your vendor can do this for you. You can click around Google Analytics to find the report. But you can look at every page on the site and you can look at a secondary dimension of just receiving traffic from Google Organic Search. If you have pages on your site, regardless of the length of the content, that are not receiving clicks directly from Google Organic Search, you can export that to a spreadsheet and you can start going through those pages and deciding, rewrite it or kill it. So pages not receiving traffic from Google Organic are just front and center up for consideration for deletion. And of course, when you remove a page, you don't just delete it. You don't cause a 404 uh, result to be served. You write a 301 redirect. So if anyone had stumbled into that page, they're now loading an updated version of 
similar content. When you see a site go through a process like this of removing pages, what normally happens after that? What's the effect that you've seen in the data when you go through that? Especially in the last year, in this time period where Google's been making lots of changes, the most common occurrence is the site rises in the search results. Now, there is old school SEO advice, which is if a site ranks, don't touch it. And, and some of the hesitancy to delete pages comes out of that line of thinking where, oh, I've, I'm, I'm, I've been on the top three search results for this term forever. And even though the page I'm deleting is not the page that is ranking, it's a secondary page that talks about something else. I don't want to touch it. If I touch something, my site will get re-indexed. And that way of thinking doesn't really apply anymore because Google has gotten much better at determining the meaning and relationship of everything on your site. And what actually happens when you delete those pages First, consider that if they're not receiving any search traffic or any outside traffic, that they're sort of trees in a forest with no one in the forest. They're, they're not, let's admit that they're not actually, a lot of these pages are not actually doing something. You know, a past version of your patient policies that you forgot was on the server, you know, that can go away right away. When you delete those things, you're actually re- reducing the number of internal links within your site. Your site navigation is being applied to every page automatically. And some things maybe you have in the footer of your site what we could call a visual sitemap or a secondary type of navigation that loads lists of pages. Any of these lists where your CMS, your, your WordPress or whatever you're running is automatically updating your site navigation or your sitemaps, all of these old pages represent internal links within the site. So when you remove the page, not only do you get to redirect to a better version of that thing, all of your site navigation, all of your sitemaps literally have fewer links. And the way links flow trust or authority in a site is based on the number of links per page. So if we have a very high authority page, just focusing on one little sliver of the things that make it rank in in search results, and that sliver being internal links, a very high authority page that links to your 10 most lucrative procedures will make those 10 pages much more important then that same high authority page, we'll go back and make it the kitten photo page on our microsite. Uh, that, that, kitten, <laughs> that kitten photo page with a thousand links can either pass, let's, let's say there are, counting your site navigation and all the cruft and other things in the code of the page, there's 500 links. Well, you can either pass one five hundredth of the influence or you can pass one tenth. So a page with, you don't need to dramatically reduce the number of pages on your site in most situations. And you don't need to go in and alter each page that only has 10 links, but it's a good way to think about things. What's happening instead is that sites have grown by accident as marketing firms change and office staff changed and somebody wrote a new blog post and somebody wrote a new blog post. And all of a sudden you have a a, a 1200 page site, but only 200 pages are receiving traffic. That's the kind of situation where reducing the page count limits the number of links in the site and causes the remaining pages to rise in the search results. That sounds like another big puzzle. Oh, it's a great puzzle. (laughs) Links are another one of those areas that's often misunderstood. And I know on my end, I get filtered about once a week. Someone says, why real self aren't you following these links to my website? And so when this happens, it's because usually there's an SEO person who is is not up to speed or not up to date on their knowledge. 
and wants us to follow all the links from a doctor's answers back to their website. And so in some cases, there are doctors who've answered 25, 30,000 questions, and every one of those answers would have a link back to their website. And, and you think, oh, look at this. This is a gold mine. We could have 30,000 links from real self. And what I've, what I've landed on over the years is my answer to that is, except we have half a million pages and we have 5,000 plus doctors, and I think many, many more than that, many thousands have answered questions and linked back to their own website. And so if we were to follow all of those links, we would look like the biggest link farm ever to exist on the planet and Google would shut us down. So there's no way we could do that. So I guess what I'd love to hear from you is how do we think about links now and kind of shove away some of this outdated thinking around followed versus no followed and really land on a practical strategy that works for my, you know, if I'm the doctor, it works for my practice website without kind of bringing some of these unreasonable tactics into play or things that could actually cause you problems down the road that you would have to undo again? Well, there've been a number of things that make this conversation easier. The first is that Google has said officially they no longer honor a a nofollow link as some separate directive to never count it. Oh, well, that makes it easy. But SEOs had noticed this behavior even years ago, especially with the behavior of sites like Wikipedia and other high-trust sites that had a lot of nofollows. There was some evidence to indicate being mentioned, especially in a prominent way, on some of these very high-trust sites with lots of nofollows was causing the page on the other end to rank higher. And if the nofollow was effective back then, that could not have been true. So... Not only has Google made it official, we think it's actually been in the algorithm for quite a while that, or I think that it's been in the algorithm for quite a while, that in the case of high trust sites, a link that is no followed can actually have a benefit. And that would include real self. Now, the number of links that come to your site from another site sort of matters. And you're talking about not accidentally looking like you're spamming the web or trying to do things that are shady. It's easy to imagine someone creating their own kind of fake website or empire of websites and then getting 2,000 links from a single blog full of poorly written content. And Google has known this for a long time. A bunch of links from one site is not nearly as strong a determining factor as one link from a high-trust domain. So it's the number of domains that have some trust that link to you that is the differentiator here, not the number of links per domain. So real self giving a particular doctor 30,000 inbound links from all the Q&A pages. Not only is that sort of an exact duplication of a pattern that Google had to crack down on because of other people's behavior, not anything to do with real self, it's not a good thing to measure anyway because let's, let's say that my mom had a, a home services hobby blog with millions of followers and she wrote a blog post about me and all of a sudden I had it in the sidebar of her site and it was 2,500 inbound links from a a hobby blog. Does Google count all 2,500 links in the same way to benefit me? No. 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 And they never have as far as I can tell. But the idea that you do need a diverse and fairly large number of linking domains 
that have talked about you at least once, and that mention probably includes a link, either no follow or do follow, that's a great measuring stick. And if you look at the differences between brands that rank number one and brands that rank number three and brands that are on page two, you do see big differences in the diversity of linking domains. And that's because it's really hard to fake. It's hard to have 200 independent websites talk about you and link to you compared to having 20. It is hard. Yeah. One thing that came to my mind was 30,000 links to your website from Real Self. It may have some marginal effect on how your website ranks. The real benefit of that is that actual humans who are considering procedures are reading the answers you wrote and now have a really easy way to go to your website and learn more about you. And so over and over, I see that that traffic convert on the doctor's website. And that's where the value is of that particular tactic on real self. It's actual humans coming to you, which is really the point of all internet marketing, isn't it? It is. You know, I don't, I've got to be careful in how I answer that. You have two audiences for every piece of marketing. You have people who become customers, and then you have places that could cause your brand to be more important. And you want both benefits. So you don't design your marketing just to create fake influence, just to cause your site to rank. Because if you design your marketing just to cause your site to rank, you miss everything that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. When you miss the real interaction that creates a real consult. But if you ignore the fact that Google in particular has to measure something, you can also go out and invest in the wrong things. If all you invested in was influencer marketing, for example, and all of your budget was spent on social media posts that are stories that expire every 24 hours, you wouldn't be building up a competitive advantage. So we measure the things that we do for our clients based on what humans are going to read this, how can they be converted, and how many of them are going to come to the site. And then technically speaking, is Google able to see this piece of content? Is it literally in a place that a computer program can come see it, notice it, and say, oh, this could matter? Right. We want both things and we design our tactics and the blog posts and all of that stuff that, that all surgeon, almost all cosmetic surgeons are doing so that you're getting both benefits. And I think you're building equity and enabling the investment in marketing to actually become smarter and less expensive over time. Whereas if you keep searching for magic bullet answers like building microsites or buying links, some of these super old tactics that for whatever reason, I still can't believe that people fall for, then you're shooting yourself in the foot for the future. And at some point, you have to stop doing that stuff and really build a strong house that delivers more value to you over time so that you don't have to work so hard. I mean, isn't that where everybody's trying to go? It is. This brings up the value of the actual business website, the the pages that you have built, the brand that you have built, it's it's very, very valuable. You want people to arrive at that site. You want to continue improving that content. You want to use it as sort of home base. Now, as marketing has gotten more complex, we've had to you know manage the Facebook page, manage some of the social media profiles, manage the content going out on in Instagram stories and other places and treat those like little extensions of the mothership. And that's fine. It's just, it's gotten more complex. But you still improve your site and use it as home base. And one of the biggest changes, I think, in Google's algorithms over the last two years is 
really the resurgence of on-site SEO. They've gotten so much better at understanding the meaning of a page. And when something is mentioned in the body text versus the sidebar, and how many pages do you have? And are people reading this? And, and all of these factors that boil down to on-site changes, that it really has made a difference in a site that was strict and thorough, targeting the voice of the actual patient in their content and the number of things they write, the number of pages on the site. Those sites dramatically outperform because Google got a lot better at reading those signals. So when Google has said things like, have a fast site or make sure your pages answer a real user need, the businesses that have taken that seriously have benefited because the algorithm has actually changed to get better at measuring the relationships of the words on each page. And that's caused a little resurgence in on-site SEO. Now, I don't want everybody to go out and re-edit their whole site and assume that that can be their marketing budget. On-site is just a portion of the pie chart here for how you attract customers. But to your point about old-school SEO, five years ago, you could overcome all kinds of on-site weaknesses just by having a bunch of off-site mentions. So you could go produce all that off-site stuff and then you know, sort of ignore a lot of the on-site things. I think that that particular period of our careers was miserable when links were really the only thing that that moved the needle because I I just could not wrap my head around getting links for the sake of getting links. I needed them to be real. And that was, I remember that being a really hard time right, <laughs> right. to do this work. I want to kind of look at Google from another angle right now, uh, less tactical and more strategic and at, at Real Self, I think you know Tom Siri. He's he's the founder of Real Self. He believes firmly that Google is enforcing more of a social responsibility in the healthcare space to protect consumers. And sometimes this is referred to as the "your money or your life" strategy. That they are really serious about making sure people are protected. And and actually, we're seeing this on Instagram and Facebook too where they're cracking down on things that might be false or misleading, like diet ads or... And cosmetic surgery is certainly falling into these rules. So I wonder philosophically how you... If you agree with that, that Google is taking a social responsibility angle on the work that we're doing, and if you've seen that play out at all with your clients. I have seen it play out. You know, I don't know about Google's motives. Dividing content on the web as an idea between content that... My Canon digital camera example. I could buy it or not buy it. No one's going to really going to be harmed if I do or don't. It's not a device that's going to cause someone to veer off the road into the ditch. It's not a device that's causing someone's skin to knit back together more slowly or more quickly than something else. And then another set of content that is, as in Google's own words, your money or your life. So that when someone gives you the money, the thing that they are getting can really affect their life. It can have a side effect that could kill them. They are going to be going into surgery where they potentially are under anesthesia. It's a product that if they misunderstand it, can really harm them. Or, And certainly if someone is lying about benefit, they can think they're protecting themselves against some illness when they're not. And therefore, they're not making the other changes in their life that could have benefited them. Google is watching these things and policing the content that they publish about those parts of the world that are your money or your life very strictly, sometimes more strictly than I would like them to. So there are many examples of this, but how Google got to that point, I can't say. But they're there and they're doing it. And I, I just I say that about motives because there was a time where AdWords 
ran ads for all of these things that were your money or your life, and Google profited greatly from it. You know, there's antitrust conversations about is Google monopoly, all these things at the top level happening give Google a secondary ulterior reason to crack down on this so that they can say with a straight face, we are trying to make these things better for people. So however they got there, they are there. And the your money or your life idea is really important. It does mean you need to be careful about what you say. One of the things, uh, claims of permanence, for example, that used to be something we would watch out for. We wouldn't try and write a procedure page unnecessarily claiming that something was forever, that you're going to be happy forever because you got this surgery. That kind of language has been absent for our sites for a long time. But we did find that as Google looked at every single synonym that could imply permanence, that we had occasionally used a word like that. that, Mm -hmm. Like once you have this body part removed, it's actually gone. That seems obvious to us. But that type of language actually fell under your money or your life. Even though the surgery is permanent, I, I can think of lots of silly examples where if you get something taken off your body, it's really gone. Even that language, cosmetic surgery sites had to start being careful with and still have to be careful with because you do want the page to rank and you want to be able to point ads to it. And Google's policies sometimes prevent you from getting even close to that topic. What kinds of technical signals do you build into a site or into a a single page that say, my content is trustworthy and is worthy of uh, your money or your life, you know, thumbs up from Google? Uh, not overstating the value proposition. So the first thing is to have a really clear mental picture of how this helps the patient and to talk about that, but to not blow it out of proportion. If this is a new medical device, a new energy device on the market, and the only studies of it are from the manufacturer of the device, a practice may buy it, a practice may use it. There may be good results, but don't overstate the potential benefit to the patient talk about what it means to be an early adopter of new technology and why that can both help you and all those things. So that's an important thing for everyone to realize. Just don't overstate the benefits. When you state the benefits, try and avoid claiming that something is a permanent forever situation for anyone because very few things in life are truly that permanent. Of course, I know I'm talk- a lot of surgeons will listen to this and they're all thinking, if it's, all- if it's out, it's out. <laughs> uh, I, agree- yeah. I agree with that. But as a large business organizing the content of the world, a search engine is going to take a slightly different stance on things like claims of permanence relating to surgeries and non-surgical procedures. Once you have taken a hard look at how you're stating the benefits and you've taken a hard look at the types of words on your page, you want to make sure you are talking about the procedure from the point of view of the patient. And then you want to add in links out to high trust resources. And this gets into something that you you haven't asked me directly, but I kind of want to slip in as something to talk about, which are ways that Google is different today and ways that the world is different. People are much better at, at seeing someone who, to use the Texas expression, is all hat, no cattle. Um, <laughs> you know, especially the millennial generation is a, a you know, trust but verify or maybe verify then trust approach. So if you're just describing benefits of a procedure and then you're saying, and yes, I do this, and that's where the conversation on your page is stopping in the words, you're missing the third piece, which is external verifiers of trust. So you can link out to a medical study, even if the entire study can't be downloaded, you can link out to the abstract page. And the fact that that page is on a US government site 
the fact that that page is on the Mayo Clinic site, these other very high trust sites, maybe it's a plastic surgery journal, all of these places that we all know they have their own editorial standards and they're very high, whether we agree with the missions of all these organizations or not, that's not, not really exactly what I'm talking about. These other organizations that have gatekeeper type standards, Google is treating their content differently. And that Google has noticed that amongst the billions of things on the web, there's a subset of things that are linked to each other that no one can argue with. It's very hard to argue with the World Health Organization about epidemiology. Like it's a high trust organization. And you can quibble with things, but if, if there's stuff on the WHO website, it's very authoritative. And if you're writing about an epidemic and not talking about the World Health Organization or the CDC, if you want to talk about the US, that page of content looks less trustworthy than the page that makes the same points, but links out to the WHO and CDC. Mm -hmm. So think of it like a web within the web. And the web within the web is high trust entities. So the third trust verifier on any page about a service or a product you offer is making sure you link out to the places that are unequivocally high trust verifiers about the thing that you're selling. So independent reviews of the digital camera even could fall into this category. But in the medical space, it's, it's sites that, are, that have their own gatekeeper status and you want to link out to those. And in the past, you might think of linking out as an interruption and in trying to convert somebody. You might think, oh, I'm putting something in their head that could introduce doubt. Yeah. They're leaving my site. I'm not going to do this. That's completely changed. That's a dead... That is not a valid path to go down. You, you want... The I don't know that that one's ever been true. And I right. I used to... I always counter every objection with data. I, I have a strong opinion about many things, but my opinion is irrelevant if I have data to use. And so I would look and say, no, no one's clicking on that. It just makes you look smarter and more helpful. Let's leave it there. And that is now something that is a fully built out part of real self strategy is to not only link out, but to create authoritative content that can be linked to. Yes. And so we stood up an entire team of editorial over the last year that is cranking out dozens of articles every week that are extremely high quality and linking many times to doctors as the citation. Mm -hmm. um, and those are followed. So we're doing both and it's working very well. And it, I'm not sure... I, I don't think it's been widely publicized yet, but when uh, Google updated the algorithm in January, all of this work that RealSelf's been doing over the last 18 months finally put us back in the right place and the traffic went up immediately overnight and has continued to grow and not just grow from last year, but we looked at the rate of acceleration of traffic growth and is growing four times faster than it has over the last three or four years. So we're seeing really good green shoots and I hate to even like go there because it's so depressing, but the virus, <laughs> the virus is changing everything for everyone across the board. So I don't want to go too crazy on that topic, especially since we're, we're getting close to wrapping this up here. But if you're a practice and you're understandably very worried about what's about to happen, both economically with people's willingness to come see you in person. And are you going to have to lay off staff? 
Are you going to have to stop marketing? All kinds of things are probably going through everyone's mind right now about their own businesses. And I can't recall a scarier time, maybe other than 9-11 or the 2008 financial crisis. Those are similar. I think this is feeling bigger. You know, I, I have some some thoughts here. It's it's a conversation in my own office amongst my team. You know, marketing in the time of coronavirus. What does that really mean? There are already fundamental changes in the traffic to to anyone listening. Any any of your sites, it's changed. The conversion rate on certain procedures is different. We're not seeing conversion rates in cosmetic surgery go to zero. So we're not seeing what some in the travel and tourism industry face, which is a complete halt in demand. And the reason for that, I think, is that even as you increase social distancing for your family and you think about, maybe I've been asked to work for home if I'm a, I'm a Google employee, once you're in that setting, you're in your house, in your home office, and you're still doing your job, you do gain a little bit of free time and you do gain a little bit of clear thinking. You've got some angst in your head, but now you're thinking about, well, you know, what do I want for myself? And I am seeing, and I, I, have cl- I have clients in two of the most affected markets in the US right now. In those markets where I thought, ooh, the conversion rate could go to zero, like cordon sanitaire doesn't mean <laughs> a lot of new consults. I, I have not seen that. I've, I've seen changes in behavior, but I have seen people, the informational side of their brain gets turned on in a different way. They're spending time at home searching for things. And one of the things they're searching for is cosmetic ser- services. Now, I don't want to be overly optimistic either and say that it's not going to affect every practice a little differently and there won't be decreases at all in business. I'm not saying any of that. Uh, but I am saying it hasn't gone to zero. There's some evidence out there already, even in, in the first weeks of the U.S. strongly affected, that people thinking about it differently doesn't mean that you can't win consults in a time of social distancing. And for the surgeons that have their own surgery centers, or that share a surgery center that only sees healthy patients and that is tightly controlled amongst a small group of practices, they have the ability to make a benefit claim. And that benefit claim is our standard practice for years has been to not see anyone who shows signs of illness. We filter at the front door and the front desk always. We all we have positive pressure ventilation. We have all of these things in place because we're a certified surgery center that other businesses do not have. And that makes it a reasonable place for you to think about coming in to see me about something if it's on your mind. I had a surgeon tell me the other day, a Seattle doc said um, he had two consults come in from people who are now working from home Mm -hmm. because they want to have surgery while they're working from home because they can still work and recover at the same time and they don't have to take time off. And no one at their office will know. So he almost immediately saw a change in behavior in, in what was coming in and it had nothing to do with not buying Right. I, I second that all of that. Uh, it's exactly what we're seeing. Changes in behavior, but it's not equaling not buying. You've got to be really careful how you talk about all this. You don't want to be yeah. in any way flippant to the level of problem that we all face, but you can continue. Yeah. And I'll add something to it from the point of view of an agency. We have to look all the time under every little rock for who could do something that would benefit our client? Like who, who could we approach about talking about our client? Which reporter do we email? All those types of questions. As other industries clamp down on their spending because it is truly ineffective, right? I mean, travel to Italy right now. No one is going to convert on that ad, so don't run the ad. Well, the person that was taking that ad revenue is now in trouble. Their business, which was ad revenue driven, all of their advertisers are canceling because the advertiser can't get a benefit. That means if you're an agency like me, there is some 
benefit in doing outreach to the places where in the past they might have been slow to respond or their pricing packages were thousands of dollars for ads because they were raking in political campaign money on one side and travel and tourism on the other. And why would they run an ad about plastic surgery or a cosmetic surgeon? All of a sudden, they'll take anybody's money because those other things have gone down or, or at least one of those other things has gone down. So there are some benefits there from the outreach point of view of outreaching to the people who are either too expensive or too busy to give you the time of day, but who've lost all their other ad sources and the cosmetic industry can still be a buyer of advertising. Very interesting. So there's there's good deals to be had, I think is what you're saying. Yes. Yes, I agree. Okay, let's... Let's move to our final question, which is the question we ask everyone who comes on this podcast. And that is, what is your unique superpower? Oh, good question. Learning. 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 Tell me more. I, I, I have always been just a very curious lad. <laughs> I, I, lo- <laughs> I love, you know, I've read outside of my work or school responsibilities, including all of my legal education. I've read at least a book a month uh, since I was about 11 years old. I love exploring the world. I love letting my mind go down all those little rabbit holes and come back. And that has greatly benefited my career, no matter what I was doing. So I, I got to claim learning. I wonder if that counts if you read Michael Connolly books every month like I do. I think it does, yes. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> if someone in the audience wants to ask you a question or reach out, how should they go about doing that? Uh, they can send me an email. It's Clark at cakewebsites.com. Cakewebsites is plural. That sounds great. Thank you very much for joining me today. I think uh, I definitely learned something. I'm sure the audience learned a lot, and I look forward to uh, getting this out there in the world for them. Thank you, Eva. It was very much a pleasure to be on the show. <laughs> Thanks, Clark. All right. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.